Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 309. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming to today's show. First up is a fact article, Synthetic Voices. Jimmy Rogers trolls the internet there to give you the best short stories out there. Then the main fiction is one of my favourite writers, writers as well, Will McIntosh, Possible Monsters. Then right at the end we've got fact, another bit of culture there for you now, Poetry Planet by Diane Severson. All about the Rising Awards, fantastic. That is today's show. Do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So straight away, let's jump into Synthetic Voices, Jimmy Rogers. Hey there, Sofanauts. I'm Jimmy Rogers, and this is Synthetic Voices. Each month, I trawl through as many free, speculative audio fiction stories as I can find, so I can share my favorites here with you. I just got back from a full weekend at Capclave, Washington, D.C.'s premier science fiction convention. I met a ton of great podcasters and got an even better perspective on where this whole short audio fiction thing is headed. It's given me a lot to think about. All right, without further ado, let's get right on to the top picks from September 2013. The first story this month is Alone Together by Robert Kirkman. It was featured in Nightmare Magazine's September issue, and was about 48 minutes long. So first off, I apologize, but it can't be helped. There are two whole stories on the top picks this month dedicated to zombies. I spaced them out, first and last, so you wouldn't be totally annoyed with me. I admit it's a pretty hackneyed trope these days, 
but I found something redeeming in both of these stories. This one is the more traditional of the two, following a group of survivors as they pick their way among humanity's ruins. In its post-apocalyptic way, it's a love story and one that will tangle you intimately into the slightly twisted desires of the protagonist. At the end, I hope you'll ask yourself if you're so different from him. Next up is The Drove of Marischalitz by David Turnbull. It was featured in Cast of Wonders, episode 94, and it was about 29 minutes long. I love this story. This was one of those instant top picks for me. I don't want to spoil the beautiful exposition, so I'll set the hook and let you take the bait. Imagine you're a young woman trying to uphold her father's name by driving a herd of potatoes across the dusty plains. This was one of the most mature stories I've seen yet on Cast of Wonders, and yet I felt like it really spoke to a younger version of myself. The action and the hardship were solid, and the world-building was novel and well-executed. Yee-haw! The next story on my list is A Short Guide to the City by Peter Straub. This was featured in Nightmare Magazine's September issue and was about 33 minutes long. Frankly, I don't know what to make of this story. It's part art, part horror, part cultural commentary, and almost completely devoid of any true narrative. That said, it kept me intrigued all the way through. Essentially, it's a tour of the districts of a post-industrial city, where these various districts have fallen each into their own forms of barbarism, as dictated by their inhabitants. There are hints and suggestions of more going on, but I'm hoping our Synthetic Voices discussion group can help me tease those out. If you'd like a little something different from the norm, check out this one. Next is Ill Met at Midnight by David Tullerman. It was featured in Beneath Cecil Skies, episode 110, and was about 36 minutes long. Here's a fun story about assassins. Real assassins probably aren't fun, but these are the fantastic kind that belong to assassins' guilds and have loads of honor. While the ending didn't floor me, I really enjoyed the personalities of the various characters. Perhaps the narration by Tales of the Left Hand's John Maher added something not contained completely within the written word. Next up is 30 Seconds From Now by John Chu. It was featured in Escape Pod, episode 412, and was about 27 minutes long. I love two things about this story. First, it opens a window on the life of a talented college student as he discovers love, pain, and what he really wants from life. By the end, I think you too will be very interested in his final decision. Second, I was happy to see that even though the protagonist is not of a heterosexual orientation, that fact does not obscure the passionate, introspective writing in the piece. Stories steeped in gay culture are fine, but it's also nice to see fiction about gay characters who aren't part of some alternative or anti-counterculture. It's almost a trope as often as I see it in speculative fiction. Oh, and he can see into the future, for those wondering what tropes are in this one. It reminds me a little bit of the movie Knowing. Yes, the 2009 film with Nicolas Cage. I did see it, and in the theater, no less. The final top pick this month is Dry Bite by Will McIntosh. 
It was featured in Lightspeed Magazine's September issue and was about 58 minutes long. Here's our second zombie story, but as you'll see, the author made quite an effort to deconstruct the worn-out zombie setup and take a turn at reinventing the zombie. I liked not being able to guess exactly what the creatures would do next. Essentially, a woman discovers her zombified family among the ruins of society, just about the time the creatures make a dramatic change to their behavior. She tries to unravel the mystery without falling victim to the zombie process herself. This piece gets bonus points for a well-timed and unforeseen, at least to me, use of the title, something I have always thought of as a hallmark of a great short story. For our first feature section this month, here are four clever stories. Two are newer, two are older, two are short, and two are long, and all are only on two different podcasts. The first story on my list is The Demon Fields by Keith McCleary. It was featured on Pseudopod episode 353 and was found at timecode 14 minutes. It was about 19 minutes long. When it comes to very short stories, you either need to be clever or impact your reader immediately. This one does both, gathering shadows around a mysterious barn, or rather, in it, and leaving the reader with what I think was a very satisfying and clever conclusion. I also enjoyed the story that played right before this one, Down by the Sea Near the Great Big Rock, so I'm slipping a mention of it in here. The next clever story is Letters from the Stars by A.E. Van Vogt. This was featured on Protecting Project Pulped, episode number 60, and was about 19 minutes long. Correspondence stories have the tendency to be repetitive and plotting, so I was happy to hear this classic soundly bucking that trend. In it, we read over the shoulder of a mysterious person writing letters from their prison cell to someone outside participating in a pen pal program. Or are they in a prison? Or are they a person? And who are they writing to, really? Everything is in question until the final entry. The next featured story is The Bungalow House by Thomas Ligotti. This was featured in Pseudopod, episode 350, and it was about one hour long. I enjoy many different types of horror, but one of my secret pleasures is what I'll call weird horror. Some authors can take off in a weird direction, exposing their readers to bizarre imagery, unreal fantasies, and hidden meanings. Great authors like Ligotti, who got a Stoker nomination for this story, by the way, can tie all of that weirdness into a cohesive, engaging plot. In this one, a rather average Joe finds himself entranced by strange audio recordings that appear at a strange art gallery of a dubious quality. The recordings take him down a path that makes him question reality. Clues are gradually revealed so that near the end, you might solve the mystery before it is presented to you in all of its weird and bizarre details. The final clever featured story is The Servant Problem by Robert F. Young. It was featured in Protecting Project Pulp, episode 61, and was about one hour long. A man is called in to appraise some property, only to discover that he is not being asked to appraise a house, but a town. They've all moved away, it seems. But to where? 
The story grows more wondrous as he discovers more and more about the empty town and the secret that it harbors. Our next feature section from September is The Great Adventure, with three stories about the great unknown and whether to leap into it. The first story is Why I Left Harry's All Night Hamburgers by Lawrence Watt Evans. It was featured in Escape Pod, episode 413. It was about 35 minutes long. Growing up in a backwater town can be tough, unless you find yourself a job at a 24-hour burger joint. You'll meet strange folk from all over, maybe a little too all over. This story fits into our adventure theme because the protagonist must choose to stay home or go out and see the wide-open spaces of the universe. A quirky little story. The next adventurous story is A Hollow Play by Amal Elmotar. It was featured in Podcastle, episode 277, and was about one hour long. Every once in a while, a story reminds me that just because mythology-based fantasy is all the rage right now, there is still lots of new, or at least prime, territory for the industrious author. Our protagonist, with a mysterious pen pal, yep, that's two on one list, happens upon a bizarre polyamorous group, some of whom are part-time mythological creatures. As a poly person myself, I really enjoyed seeing poly angst on display in all of its many shades. And magic only adds another layer of social complexity. Together, or maybe not, they must decide if they will risk personal sacrifices to find their heart's desires. Oh, and on an administrative note, normally major audio issues invalidate a story for consideration on this list. On this recording, there is a noticeable whine. I determined, though, that the audio is still listenable and decided to include it, despite some occasional annoyance. I hope you'll agree that it's worth it. Our final adventure story is And Then Some by Matthew Hughes. It was featured in Lightspeed Magazine's September issue and was about one hour long. This tale sits somewhere between a hard-boiled detective story and military adventure. In space, an agent for hire must escape imprisonment and protect the interests of his employer. From there, the story takes a complete twist into the exploration of alternate dimensions. Work in a mine, play assassin, and test the limits of our reality. I give this one points for originality, as I've never come across a short story so unmarried to any particular type of narrative action. Our final feature section this month is Two Stories with Great Emotion. The first story is The Promise of Space by James Patrick Kelly. It was featured in Clark's World Magazine's September issue and was about 30 minutes long. Join Kate Baker and the author... James Patrick Kelly, for a narrative duet in this ongoing lover's quarrel. Would you still feel the same way about your partner if they had to interface with a machine to think or remember your life together? And what if he did it to himself, but for a good cause? The emotional weight is tangible in these two characters, as the narrators each did a terrific job bringing them to aural life. Our final emotional story this month is... Water Finds Its Level by M. Bernardo. 
It was featured in Starship Sofa, episode 304, at time code 1 hour and 20 minutes, and was about 30 minutes long. Here's another story by M. Bernardo that can easily hook you with its premise alone. How would your life change if your apartment began to merge with its alternate universe double? Keep in mind that alternate universe doubles of your apartment are rarely unoccupied. I don't know how I feel about the ending, so I'm hoping for some varied opinions at our monthly podcast discussion. Well, that just about does it for Synthetic Voices this month. Remember to support your favorite audio fiction podcasts, including Starship Sofa, of course, with either one-time or monthly subscriptions. All the music used in this episode is distributed under an extensive series of Creative Commons licenses, which you can find along with the show notes over at scienceismagic.com. If you'd like to subscribe to our dedicated feed, search Synthetic Voices on iTunes, or find us on Stitcher. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next month. I'm plugged into the world, I'm wired, wired but disconnected. There you go, big thank you, Jimmy. Thank you so much. If you want, everyone, just go over there and subscribe to Jimmy's podcast. Well worth it. Yes, you get it here as well, but you know what I mean? It's just nice to kind of get Jimmy's figures up there as well. So please pop over there and subscribe too with Synthetic Voices. And Jimmy was mentioned there, Protecting Project Pulp, Simon and Fred's Little Endeavour. Please, that would be very nice if you could go over there and subscribe to Protecting Project Pulp for true high-blazing adventure. Can't get better than that. Next up is the main fiction, and like I say, it's one of my favourite writers there. Will, together with Jason Sanford and Ted Kuzmatka, those kind of guys, they just kind of press the buttons for me in short story writing. And now with Will... You know, and Ted, and Jason as well, all kind of delving into the novels as well, so that's all good. I'll give you a little heads up about Will McIntosh. His debut novel, Soft Apocalypse, was the finalist for both the Locust and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. His second novel, Hitches, was published in 2012 by Nightshade Books. He is a frequent contributor to Asimov's, where his story Bridesigal won the 2010 Reader's Award, as well as the 2010 Hugo Award for Best Short Story. His third novel, Love Minus 80, was based on Bridesigal, will be published by Orwood Books in June 2013. Will recently moved to Williamsburg, Virginia with his wife Alison and twins Hannah and Miles. He left a position as psychology professor in southeast Georgia at the right full time. Will is represented by Seth Fishman at the Gurnet Company. There you go. And like I say, I'll put a link on the Will site as well. Just pop over there. Anything by Will McIntosh, you know what I mean? We've played a few stories by Wills, and I'm so glad we did. They're just cracking, man. Just full of ideas. Bang, bang, bang. Different ideas. If you haven't listened to it yet, go and check out Starship Silver 124, which is the Bridesicle story, which won the Hugo as well. Just a cracking story. And it's narrated by Amy H. Sturgis as well. Same year we won the Hugo. <clears throat> Just saying, you know. Now this, the narrator. Aye. We've got the old timers on there today. We've got Mike Boris. Yes, 
Mike, I don't mean that nasty. It's all time. You've been around the block, shall we see? He's seasoned and weathered, shall we say? Mike is a ceramic engineer by degree and a professional narrator of e-learning courses by choice. Although born and raised in New Jersey, Mike now resides in the Midwest of the United States, the father of four strapping boys. Mike is also a certified scuba diver, has toured a good part of the Western and Central Europe, singing for dignities and common folk alike. He's driven across the breadth of America with four kids and a wife and lived to tell the tale. Parasailed the mountains of France, served breakfast in Vienna wearing a woman's skirt and performed as Mr. Potato Head with a travelling Renaissance Fair. He's narrated stories for Starships Over Crime City Central, Tears to Terrify, Escape Pod and Drabblecast and swears that all of this, with the exception of one, is true. Mike, what can I say? It's lovely to have you back on, Mike. Let's see, just fantastic. And if you haven't heard just how good Mike is, go back to it's Adam Troy Castro's, I think it was show Starships Over Show 84, when Mike narrated the of a sweet slow dance in the wake of temporary dogs, which is like say by Adam Troy Castro. Just, I mean, honestly, the story is just magnificent. And don't get us wrong, Mike, it's hard and it's like it's adult only story. It is a fantastic story and it's just brought to life by Mike. Excellent narrating. But, anyways, we're on to Will McIntosh's story. So, the Starship's over. He is very proud to present. Possible Monsters by Will McIntosh. Mailboxes whooshed by in the warm night air. Cooper was tempted to stick his hand out the window, to feel the pressure of the wind on his palm, to feel something. But he didn't trust himself with only one hand on the wheel. Not after four beers. What he didn't need right now was to plow into a parked car. This whole stupid all-night drive could have been avoided if the night clerk at that rickety hotel hadn't asked what he did for a living. For the briefest instant, he'd swelled with pride and opened his mouth to say he was a baseball player, a pitcher, triple-A, going to be in the majors someday. Then he remembered he wasn't anymore. Palm to forehead, buddy. You just threw in the towel. Finally admitted to yourself that you weren't good enough. That's why you're checking into a rickety hotel halfway between Zebulon, North Carolina, and home. Cooper yawned hard. Now that the fifteen-hour drive was over and he was two minutes from his parents' house, his house now, he reminded himself. He was past sleepy into that hyper-alert, headachey state. He passed his old high school, his skin crawling as the sight fired off unwanted memories. They'd be all over town, his ex-classmates who hadn't escaped this place, working in the auto repair shop where he'd bring the aging Mercedes he'd bought with some of his signing bonus managing the diner where he'd choked down breakfast once the sun rose, and piled ass-deep at the Netflix distribution center, the big employer in town for high school graduates who had no marketable skills but could put things into alphabetical order. Julie, his ex-girlfriend, was out there somewhere as well, ready to gloat at his failure and humbling return. Cooper pulled into his driveway, washing the house in white light. It had only been, what, eight months since he'd last seen it? Two weeks spent going through his father's stuff, deciding what should go to the Salvation Army, what went in the estate sale, and what he should keep. Good times. About as much fun as he was having now, pulling into his new old home. As he pulled up to the garage, he saw that it was damaged. The wood was bulging and splintered, like someone had plowed into it in a few different spots. Cooper pulled closer, 
cursing and squinting as his headlights flooded the little space. What the hell? Something squeezed out of the splits in the wall. It looked like glass or ice. He turned off the engine, got out, and took a closer look. Cursing, he ran his finger along a split. He was afraid to go inside. It looked like something had exploded in there, and he couldn't afford major repairs. Heart hammering, he went to the side door, tried to put a key in the lock, but his hand shook so badly he had to steady it with the other. Yeah, highly coordinated, professional athlete. He flipped on the light and turned toward the living room. Jesus! It took him a moment to make sense of it, his heart a wild animal in his chest. A third of the living room was encased in rough, glassy stuff. Then he realized there was something inside it. It was a tangle of barbs and bubbles and edges leaned up against his fireplace, which was on the other side of the glass divide. The thing's eyes locked on him. It had eight or nine of them, and they looked like they were a million years old. There was a ragged hole in the floor in front of the fireplace. The floor was concrete under the carpet and shouldn't be able to look peeled up, like plastic wrap someone had poked a finger through, but that's what it looked like. When he looked inside the hole, he got dizzy and nauseous. His eyes seemed unable to make sense of what they were seeing in there. Struggling not to piss his pants, Cooper ran. He was in his car, backing down the driveway with no memory of getting in the car or starting it. His cell phone was in his hand. He dialed 911. There's something in my house, Cooper said when the 911 operator came on. I don't know what it is, but it's made like a nest in there. I'm sorry. The operator interrupted. That's not a 911 emergency. You'll need to contact an exterminator. Cooper laughed harshly, hysterically. No exterminator wants anything to do with this thing. It's huge. I'm bigger than a person. I, I don't know what it is. His lips felt numb. Do you mean like a bear? It's not a bear. It's, I don't know, it's a monster with all these eyes. After a pause, the operator said, can you give me your name? The way she said it cleared Cooper's head a little. She was going to send the police to pick him up for psychiatric evaluation. Sorry to bother you, he said, and disconnected. He needed to think this through. He needed a place to think this through, as slowly and calmly as possible. A hotel, maybe, which meant he would be sleeping in a hotel after all. Was there anyone in town he could call? His close friends had all moved out of town gone off to college and started lives in Boston, Chicago, Jacksonville. A few of the guys he used to collect baseball cards with were still here. Shug, Cooper, a few of his high school teammates, his ex-girlfriend Julie. He guffawed at the thought of calling Julie and asking if he could crash at her place. Yeah, there's something in my house. Can I sleep on your couch? What the hell was that thing? It was like a giant sponge with broken glass and barbed wire tangled in it with eyes. He pulled into a strip mall parking lot and called Shug. Shug laughed when Cooper told him there was a monster in his house, but when he asked if he could crash, Shug said, Sure, man, come on over. Shug frowned mightily at Cooper. Are you sure about what you saw in there? Cooper felt like he was falling into a black pit. The one thing he had was the house. He sighed, dragged his hands down his oily face. He needed a shower. Yeah, I'm sure. You want to see for yourself? Cooper could unlock the door for Shug and wait outside. Shug leaped up and grabbed his hat. Let's go! 
He looked like a kid on Christmas morning, waiting to go downstairs and see what Santa brought him. He didn't seem to understand that Santa had brought a nightmare. They talked baseball cards on the drive over in Shug's old Chrysler New Yorker, how professional grading had ruined the fun. Shug talked about cards anyway. Cooper grunted occasionally while his palms sweat. Shug whistled as they pulled into the driveway. God damn, that's a mess! Wait till you see the inside. Cooper was beginning to doubt what he had seen earlier. Was it just some sort of big animal? A big possum or beaver that built strange nests or something? He prepared himself for the possibility that he was going to feel very stupid when Shug got a look at it. Still, when Cooper unlocked the door, he didn't go in. He just pushed it open and waved Shug in. Shug waggled his eyebrows and stepped inside. Shug shrieked. A second later, he flew past Cooper on his way to the car. Cooper jogged after him, afraid Shug would strand him there. Cooper wasn't sure what to do. Should he call the FBI? The Army? Don't call the law, Shug said, shaking his narrow head emphatically. When they see what's inside, they'll run yellow police line do-not-cross tape around your house, and then the feds will come, and they'll confiscate your house, and you'll be fucked. He suspected Shug was right. As soon as the authorities saw it, they would cordon off his house, and Cooper would have no say in what happened after that. It's got to be worth something to someone. Worth a lot, maybe. Millions. Shug was on his sixth beer. His hand was still shaking. Selling it would solve two problems, because whoever bought it would have to catch it and haul it away, leaving him with money to repair his house and maybe live comfortably for a while. You can't tell anyone else about this, Shug said, eyeing Cooper over his beer. Word will spread until it's out of your control and the jackboots come. Cooper gawked at Shug like he just suggested they drive off the Manans Bridge. I'm serious. I barely saw it last time. This time I'm prepared. Shug lifted his beard, drained what was left in one long pull. Come on. Cooper turned the car around. So besides selling this thing, what are your plans, now that the baseball thing isn't working out? I have no idea, Cooper said. I don't really want to think about it. You should come work at Netflix, Shug said, clapping Cooper's shoulder. We have a pretty good time there. He tilted his head. I'm buddies with Angela in HR. Put in an application and you'll have a job in a couple of days. Was that what this had come to? Sticking DVDs in little red sleeves instead of pitching to Albert Puyos? Cooper needed money, and he probably couldn't wait to see if he could cash in on his monster. Maybe I will. At least to pay the bills until I figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Hey, Shug said, you can get in on the lottery pool. We all kick in 20 a week. There are 20, 25 people in it, so we'd buy like 500 tickets and we'd split the pot when we win. Chug held out his palm. Give me 20 and I'll cut you in this week. Cooper shook his head, exasperated. I don't have 20 bucks to throw away right now. Chug dropped his hand. Okay, fine, don't get all pissy. He pulled into Cooper's driveway, cut the headlights, and hopped out of the car like the seat was red hot. I'm kind of scared. Shug admitted as they headed toward the car park door, Shug clutching another six-pack. Scared as he was, Cooper wanted to see it again as well. Already the specifics of it were dimming in his memory. With a soft curse, he followed Shug inside. It didn't look any better the second time. It was eating something oily and black, or, or at least pushing it into a hole underneath the wide part that held all the eyes. It watched them as it ate. 
One of the eyes disappeared for a moment, then reappeared. Something like that just shouldn't be, Shug almost whispered. There's nothing like that. He gestured toward the thing with the beer he'd just opened. It's like an alien, but there's no ship. Maybe what it's in is the ship, Cooper said. They watched it for hours. Cooper drank steadily until his fear was replaced by numb shock. He sat against the wall taking big, huffing, drunk breaths and stared at the thing while it stared back. He woke on the floor, alone except for the monster behind the glass. There was a note on his chest from Shug saying he'd gone to work. The monster was circling the perimeter of its lair, walking on five squat legs that Cooper hadn't noticed before, looking like a grizzly at the zoo. Cooper's head was pounding, and he felt nauseous. The sight of the thing wasn't helping his headache, so he slipped outside. He needed to call someone to come over and look at this thing, see if he really could sell it. He wasn't sure who might buy it. A zoo? Maybe Barnum and Bailey's Circus? He could imagine how those calls would go. What he probably needed to start was a lawyer. Standing in his parents' yard, there was nothing he could think to do but drive over and speak to Kenny Stone, a lawyer who was the father of one of his high school friends. So that's what he decided to do. On the way, he stopped at the Netflix distribution center and applied for a job. They hired him on the spot. Uneasy about the prospect of telling a lawyer there was a monster in his living room, Cooper postponed the visit to Kenny Stone. Shug took a couple of steps toward the monster, craned his head forward and squinted. I guess that glass stuff is pretty thick. He raised his hand, tapped the glass. The monster looked at him. Cut it out, Cooper hissed. It don't seem to care. Shug laughed and went on tapping for a moment. Then he backed off and set his empty Coors bottle on an end table. We should get going, work bright and early. Cooper looked at the monster. Several of his eyes swiveled to look back at him. I think I'm going to stay a while. Shug gawked at him like he'd just said he was planning to marry a goat. Alone? Cooper shrugged. If it hasn't done anything dangerous by now, I'm guessing it isn't going to. I want to study it, see if I can figure it out. Suit yourself, Shug said, his expression making it clear he thought Cooper was an idiot. When Shug was gone, Cooper watched the monster and sipped his vodka and orange. Cooper wondered where it came from. The hole seemed like a good bet. Cooper glanced into it, quickly looked away because it felt like someone was twisting his brain when he looked. It was like it had burrowed from somewhere. Part of it was rippling along the floor like fingers drumming. You bored? Cooper asked. The rippling continued. Cooper made a cautious trip to the kitchen for more vodka. The thing's eyes tracked him across the room and were watching the kitchen door when he came out and headed for a spot by the wall. He was sick of sitting on the floor, though, so he veered unsteadily and instead stretched out in Dad's recliner. How about some TV? Cooper plucked the remote from the end table and turned on the TV. A Pirates game flashed to life. Cooper immediately turned the channel. No baseball. The monster pressed up to the glass, staring at the TV. Cooper chuckled despite himself. You like TV? He flipped to CNN, which was covering mass protests in Miramar. Some of the sharp edges of the thing seemed to smooth as it moved along the glass to get as close to the screen as possible. Cooper flipped the channel again, watching the monster carefully. It watched Say Yes to the Dress intently. Was Cooper imagining it, attributing human-like qualities to the thing? 
He didn't think so. As a test, he tried turning the TV off. The thing turned to look at him, giving him a fresh bloom of the willies. He turned the TV back on, and the thing went back to watching. Eventually, Cooper figured out that when the thing tapped on the glass, it wanted Cooper to change channels. He obliged until he passed out. A scraping sound woke him. He opened his eyes, not sure where he was, still drunk. An old western was on TV. Robert Mitchum was shooting cans off a split-rail fence. Out of the corner of his eye, Cooper spied something that looked wrong. He jolted upright. There was a big hole in the glass. The monster wasn't there. Very slowly, Cooper turned to look around the room. It was standing right behind him. Without the glass to soften it, its sharp angles and prickly spines were in sharp focus. The wet parts slid along like they had minds of their own, and the wild, wiry parts vibrated like plucked guitar strings. Its eyes were clear and bright. They appraised him with what looked like sadness. It lifted an appendage, slowly lowered it toward Cooper's forehead. With a shout, Cooper rolled off the recliner. He scrabbled toward the door, but the jointless, jagged appendage chased him, growing and stretching. It slammed into the side of his head. A blinding flash burst behind Cooper's eyeballs, and then everything went dark. When Cooper woke, it was light outside. He pulled himself onto all fours and, gasping, cast about the room, trying to locate the monster. It was back behind the glass. The hole was gone, as if it had never been there in the first place. Cooper rose, his gaze fixed on the scene behind the glass. There was another monster in there, back near the fireplace, peering out of the window into the backyard. It looked just like the first. Eyeing the spot in the divider where the gaping hole had been, Cooper wondered if he'd imagined the whole thing. It hadn't seemed like a drunken vision. His memory of that up-close look at the thing as it hovered over him was remarkably vivid. Cooper shook his head, headed into the kitchen to get something to drink. His head was pounding. Usually he made sure to take an aspirin and drink a big glass of water before going to sleep when he had a lot to drink. But last night hadn't been a usual sort of night. He skidded to a halt in the doorway, clutched the counter like he was on a keeling ship. He was sitting at the kitchen table, eating breakfast. He saw himself sitting there, munching on frosted mini-wheats. Not a washed-out, wavery mirage, but his completely solid self, wearing a wrinkled white polo shirt. Cooper opened his mouth to say something to himself and let out a lone, unarticulated syllable. Was he losing his mind? Of course he was. Who are you? Cooper managed to warble. The other self went on eating. He turned the mini-wheats box sideways, finished reading the back and now reading the ingredients and nutrition information out of boredom. This was just the sort of thing Cooper would do. Hello? No response. Cooper crept forward, ready to flee if the situation got any weirder, until he was close enough to touch his doppelganger. Can you hear me? Cooper reached out, let his fingers hover close to his double shoulder. If he set his hand on that shoulder and it was solid, he was going to scream. If he could feel the other him, he was too far gone. It would mean he would never be able to unravel reality from delusion. His fingers quavered as he lowered them, then disappeared as his hand sank through the perfectly solid-looking wrinkled white shirt looking like it had been severed bloodlessly at the wrist. His hand reappeared as he drew it out. Releasing his breath with an audible puff, 
Cooper realized his double wasn't making any sound. No clink of the spoon against the cereal bowl, no slurp or rustle of clothing. It was an illusion, a hallucination. It was the monster who was doing this. Of course it was. The monster was getting inside his head, causing him to hallucinate. Soon he'd be wearing aluminum foil skull caps and listening to voices in his head telling him who to hack up with a butcher knife. Unless the monster was another hallucination. Shug had seen it too, though, unless Shug was a hallucination. He didn't even want to entertain that possibility. No, sir. He ran for his car. He needed to get away from the thing and stay away. Or better still, get it hauled far away from him so he could clear that glassy shit out and have his house back. Cooper dug his phone out of his pocket, dialed 411. Yeah, can you give me a number for Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus? He was pretty sure that was still the name of the big one. The call didn't go any better than his call to 911 a few days earlier. The guy he spoke to quickly pegged him as a nutbag. If he could get someone to come look at the thing, he was sure he could get rid of it. But how to get someone to come? Maybe he should pretend to be a potential big donor to SUNY Albany's biology department and request someone come to his house. The thing was, he didn't want to go anywhere near his house until the creature was hauled away. How exactly would they haul it away? What would they do, cut a door in the glass with a chainsaw and stick a cage in front of it? Maybe the FBI was the answer. Let them cordon off his house for a few months. At least they'd eventually take the thing away. Cooper slid his phone into his pocket. Right now he wanted nothing more than to go to work and tear open envelope after envelope and inspect DVDs for scratches and cracks for the next eight hours. The idea of mindless activity was extremely appealing. In the rearview mirror, Cooper spotted his double cruising along in midair, sitting on nothing, his right hand working an invisible steering wheel. Cooper jerked his own wheel just in time to avoid running onto the sidewalk. He pulled over, let his other self fly soundlessly past. Cooper looked around at the five or six people on the sidewalk. None of them seemed to notice the guy whizzing by in an invisible car. More evidence that he was hallucinating. Of course he was hallucinating, though it was such a vivid hallucination. Cooper followed himself to work. His other self stepped out of the invisible car and headed inside. Cooper jogged to catch up, falling into step just behind himself, just to make absolutely certain no one else saw the double. No one gave Cooper a second look as he passed. His double took up residence at his station, a swivel seat at a desk on a factory floor filled with identical desks. Cooper hovered near the seat, not sure what to do as his double reached for the stack of red envelopes, withdrew his hand holding nothing, and began opening a phantom envelope. Hey, Cooper! Tim Cochran, his shift manager, gave him a friendly wave. It was his polite way of telling Cooper to get his ass in his chair and start processing envelopes. Cooper considered feigning illness, but he'd just walked in. He hovered a moment longer, then moved his chair two feet to the left so he wasn't sitting entirely in the same space as the other Cooper. It was disconcerting when his fingers or part of his elbow disappeared whenever he accidentally brushed up against his double. The double was working with much more focus, going through three invisible envelopes for every two Cooper managed. Cooper, why are you sitting like that? Cooper looked over his shoulder at Tim, standing with arms folded. He unfolded his arms long enough to direct Cooper to roll to his right. It slows you down when you're not square in your station. 
Struggling not to wince, Cooper slid over, merging into his double like two soap bubbles joining. His double paused from his work, lifted an invisible cup of coffee and took a sip, then got back to opening envelopes. With Tim hovering, Cooper got back to work as well. It felt like he had four arms, it was confusing, and caused him to fumble as he processed disc after disc. And three minutes to twelve, his double got up and headed to lunch. Cooper waited until he was gone, then followed suit. He prayed his double wasn't heading to the same restaurant as him. On his way out of Larry's giant subs, carrying an eight-inch turkey on white in a plastic bag, Cooper spotted Julie getting out of her car. He'd known it was only a matter of time before he bumped into her, but his heart whomped in his chest as he fished keys from his pocket and for some reason pretended that he hadn't yet seen her. Julie stopped dead when she saw him. Cooper acted surprised and tried to give her a friendly smile, as if there was nothing awkward or painful about bumping into her. Hey, he said as they stood between the bumpers of two cars in the bleak strip mall parking lot. Maybe he was so nervous because he wasn't at his best right now. He was losing his mind and had a monster living in his house. Ideally, you wanted to bump into your ex when you're rested and wearing your best suit. I heard you were back in town, she said. Yeah, he shrugged, glancing back at the entrance to Larry's, as if there was something to see there. I missed all the great restaurants, he held up his bag. Julie smiled at his lame joke, folded her arms. I was sorry to hear about your dad. I cried when I heard the news. Yeah, me too. He realized it wasn't a very generous response to her offer of condolence and quickly added, Thanks, I, I appreciate it. There were so many unsaid things hovering between them that Cooper had trouble seeing Julie through the haze of them. Now that he was back, the reason for their breakup was no longer even valid. So what kept them from getting back together? For Cooper, it was that he didn't want to take yet another step back into high school, or something like that. You still at the bank? he asked, because he didn't know what else to say. Julie nodded. Still there. I got a promotion a couple of months back. I got my own desk and everything. That's terrific, he said, trying to muster some enthusiasm, but mostly failing. He considered telling her about the monster in his house, but decided against it. They stood in silence a beat longer than was comfortable. Then Julie said, Well, I should get going. It was nice to see you. As Julie turned, Cooper opened his mouth to say something, but he wasn't sure what. He felt like he wanted to cry, but wasn't sure why. He knew it would be hard the first time he bumped into Julie, but he'd expected her to play the jilted girl, maybe gloat over his fall from the pinnacle. He'd almost forgotten who she was, had replaced her with the cardboard cutout of the ballplayer's hometown ex-girlfriend. Most of the ballplayers in the minors had one. He suddenly felt like they'd just broken up, like he was reliving the pain of those first few barren post-Julie days. He headed toward his car. Julie called his name. He looked over at her. I'm sorry things didn't work out for you. I really mean that. The sincerity of her words, her tone, her face, took him by surprise. He paused, almost turned back, but didn't know what he'd say. Thanks, he managed, and turned toward his car. For an instant, he had the sensation of stretching. An extra set of legs popped free below his hips. They stayed put as he stumbled away. He turned, saw himself still occupying the spot he had just vacated, 
holding an invisible Larry's sandwich bag, his mouth moving soundlessly. His double was back, only now he was wearing the same black polo and jeans as Cooper. Cooper unlocked his BMW and sped away. In the rearview mirror, he saw his double, head down, still talking. When he got back to Netflix, his double was already working. He was back in the white shirt. Cooper took his seat, flinching as he pushed into the space occupied by his other self. After opening half a dozen envelopes, Cooper rotated his chair to face the other way, hunched over with his face in his hands. He realized now that he'd come to work because some part of him thought the hallucination would wink out of existence here, banished by the hard fluorescent light and the stark drudgery of the work, if not by the distance he'd just put between himself and the monster. It wasn't working, and the sight of those extra hands, the four knees clustered down by his lap, was making him feel even more insane than he clearly was. He stood to leave, just as a third Cooper materialized through the door and headed toward him. This was the one wearing the black shirt. The double, or maybe it was triple now, sat overlapping the other duplicate and got to work. Cooper tried to appear calm as he got out of there. One of the doubles, the one dressed like Cooper, also stayed at Shug's that night. Cooper didn't know where the other had gone, and he said nothing to Shug about the extra Cooper. When his double showered, dressed in a button-down shirt that he pulled out of thin air and headed out at a quarter till seven, Cooper followed him. His double drove the invisible car to Broad Street, parked in a spot already occupied by a Chevy Trailblazer, and headed into Manny's diner. Cooper chose a booth facing his double, ordered coffee and tried not to stare at what to others looked like an empty booth. No. Cooper shook his head. It was an empty booth. He had to be careful not to think of these apparitions as having any basis in reality. If he started believing in them, he'd end up in a padded cell. This was something the creature had done to his mind. He had to figure out how to undo it, if that was possible. The other Cooper was carrying on a silent conversation with an unseen companion in the booth across from him, and he seemed to be having a good time. From t a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Time to time he laughed as he swirled an invisible coffee cup and ate what Cooper guessed was a piece of carrot cake 
based on what he knew of his typical Manny's ordering habits. Cooper's attention was drawn to the window behind his double, where another Cooper whizzed by, his ass three feet off the ground, his foot working an invisible pedal. Cooper dropped a ten on the table and hurried out. He was able to catch a glimpse of this other Cooper just as he made a ride onto Habersham and followed him to McDonough's Irish pub. His doubles were having a busy night. McDonough's wasn't Cooper's kind of place. It was typically thick with smoke, the floor sticky with beer, and, as Cooper pushed open the big wooden door, he discovered it was especially loud on this night. People were screaming at the top of their lungs and jumping up and down out of sync with the music, hugging each other like they were in the middle of a reunion. Cooper recognized a lot of Netflix employees, including Shug. Shug had tears drying on his cheeks. His eyes were closed, his head thrown back as he howled like a drunken wolf. Cooper! Shug noticed him at the door and raced over with his arms out. We did it! We fucking won! He cackled like a loon. Won what? Shug grabbed him by the back of the neck and pulled his face close. The big one! The lottery! Like, like two hundred and something million! Split seventeen ways! He threw his hand in the air and hooted again. I'm rich! Feeling like he was falling from a great height, Cooper tried to smile, to act happy for Shug. Shug got serious for a minute. Sorry you didn't come in with this, Cooper. I really am, dude. Cooper tried to shrug, tried to say, no problem, but it wouldn't come. He'd almost reached into his pocket and handed Shug that twenty. Shug bounced away, spinning in a hug with Lisa, another Netflix employee who'd evidently given Shug a twenty, leaving Cooper in an empty pocket of space inside the packed bar. Across the bar, Cooper spotted his double, mouth cranked open in a silent shout as he leaped to give some phantom person a very high five. He moved around the bar, slapping invisible backs, exchanging invisible handshakes, in a state of utter jubilation. The monster came right to the glass when Cooper walked in, as if asking, Where have you been? There were six identical monsters in the space with him, but none of the other five paid Cooper any attention. Now he understood why. They weren't actual monsters, they were possible monsters. Maybe one of the other monsters was the track where Cooper's monster had given Cooper the gift, or curse, or whatever it was intended to be, of witnessing the consequences of his choices. His monster looked at the TV, longingly, Cooper thought. You meant well, didn't you? Cooper asked. Where the thing came from, it was probably normal to see all of your possibilities, all the might-have-beens paraded in front of you. You were paying me back for helping you channel surf. A big old thank you. It must have thought, look at that pathetic guy, never knowing if he made the right move. Let me help him out. Cooper retrieved the remote from his recliner and clicked on the TV. The thing's sharper edges smoothed as the screen flashed to life. Two and a half men. The thing is, you don't do me any favors. Now I get to see all my fuck-ups in three-dimensional living color. He tossed the remote down and went to bed. He wasn't afraid of the monster anymore. It would be far more unpleasant to spend the night with Shug and hear about all the things he was going to buy. Cooper always thought he was going to be the one who was special, the major leaguer who rose from humble beginnings. Now he was less than ordinary, a guy who worked a meaningless job in a small town where 18 people were millionaire lottery winners. Cooper spotted one of his other selves pulling up to the pump and the time saver. He slowed and pulled in after him, parked in one of the spots in front of the store, and watched through the side-view mirror. 
This one was dressed in Dolce and Gabbana jacket, and he was putting premium gas in his invisible car. Probably a Lamborghini. Cooper always thought if he got the chance to sign one of those lucrative free agent contracts, he'd buy a Lamborghini. Just because it seemed like the most expensive car you could buy that everyone had heard of. When his lottery winner self finished and pulled out, Cooper followed. It was the height of masochism. But it was addictive following a dozen storylines, a dozen reality shows where you're the star. His rich self went to Venus de Milo's, the swanky new bar Shug owned one of a dozen lavish new businesses that seemed absurdly out of place in their little town. Ten of the seventeen millionaires had remained in Porterville, and they had to spend all that money somehow. What was the point of having eleven million dollars if you didn't spend some of it? In Venus, Shug was dancing with a drop-dead gorgeous girl in a short black skirt. Cooper thought of them as lottery girls. They started showing up a few days after the Netflix gang's good fortune hit the news. The rich Cooper was at the bar. He looked like he might be chatting with a lottery girl as well. Cooper had been following him more than the others, vicariously absorbing some of the good life he'd missed out on when he decided not to pull that twenty out of his wallet. As far as he could tell, rich Cooper didn't work. He was often gone, probably traveling to Crete or Tuscany or one of the other places Cooper always wanted to go. Chances were he took a lottery girl with him. Another Cooper arrived with his arm around an invisible someone that Cooper knew was Julie, because he'd followed this Cooper to Julie's house a number of times. This Cooper was in jeans and the inevitable polo, and he had dark rings under his eyes like the real Cooper. From nights spent thinking, if only I'd ponied up that twenty thoughts. But there was something in his face that suggested Cooper had made more peace with his missed millions. Maybe because he didn't have the same reminder in the form of rich Cooper whizzing around in his invisible Lamborghini. Cooper with Julie sat at a table in the raised area near the pool tables. Cooper, who had quit his job at Netflix, was probably over at the tavern drinking bucka beers, sporting three days of stubble, and wondering what he was going to do when his last trips of bonus money were played out. They were all over the board, his possible selves, though he had to say, while he wouldn't necessarily want their lives. Most were more interesting than his. Rich Cooper left early, beaming. His forearm held at an angle that suggested a lottery girl was hanging from it. Cooper left a few minutes later, after a final glass toward Cooper with Julie. Berkshire Road rolled by with nothing but cyclone fences and nondescript industrial businesses on either side. Cooper took the turns hard. He never felt so untethered to the world. His future, which had always been so clear and easy to imagine, was now nothing but a gray haze. He knew he needed a plan. He still hadn't contacted Kenny Stone, the lawyer, because the extra Coopers had complicated things. Maybe the monster could turn off the alternate selves if Cooper figured out how to ask, but that would not be possible if he sold it. He was fairly sure he wanted the other selves gone. It wasn't all bad having them around, especially with so little else going on in his life. But it made him feel unbalanced to see them when no one else could. All in all, it would probably be good if they disappeared. But regardless of the apparitions, what was he going to do? It was hard to think about starting college at twenty-six, living in dorms with eighteen-year-olds fresh out of high school. The thought of working at Netflix for the next thirty years was intolerable. Passing a boarded-up furniture factory, Cooper slowed, cursed softly. The rich Cooper was lying twisted on the side of the road. Cooper pulled onto the shoulder and got out. 
Rich Cooper was upside down, his head at an alarming angle, his back bent into a U that bordered on a V. He was suspended two feet off the ground. Another two feet separated him from the bow of a white birch. Cooper was certain the space between his double's lifeless body and the birch was occupied by crumpled Lamborghini. For all he knew, he was standing on Lottery Girl. It was a sobering sight. There wasn't much blood, likely because of airbags, but even now, just a few minutes after the accident, the left side of Rich Cooper's face was swollen and purple. Cooper squatted on his haunches and pondered that face. Was this for sure how he would have ended up if he'd been in on the lottery? It was impossible to know. The creature in his house wasn't going to tell him. Maybe these possible cells were filtered through his own subconscious, images of how he imagined things would unfold. The rich Cooper rose higher into the air, more likely he was lifted. He straightened out somewhat, then drifted away flat on his lifeless back. Cooper watched as he was loaded into an invisible ambulance and sped away, shrinking, shrinking, until he winked out of sight over a rise. Cooper slid into his BMW and headed home, twenty miles per hour slower than he'd been driving, because he was drunk, and he should fucking know better than to fly around turns at sixty-five in a forty-five zone after five beers. As he drove, he thought about Rich Cooper. Somehow he felt certain what he'd seen was a true glimpse into the might-have-been, not something he simply imagined. His dark mood lifted. It kept on lifting until he was grinning, then chuckling, then laughing deep down in his belly. Yeah, if he'd only pulled out that twenty. He wished he could tell Cooper with Julie what that twenty had really bought. Another Cooper passed him going the other way, and Cooper nearly ran his car into a ditch despite his slow speed. The white pinstripes and bright red sleeves this other Cooper was wearing were unmistakable. It was a Cincinnati Reds uniform. Cooper had no doubt about when this other Cooper came to be. He was from the night Cooper decided to call it quits, the night he stopped in that Cracker Box motel in Pennsylvania. This Cooper had originated from before Cooper ever laid eyes on the monster. Another piece of the puzzle dropped into place. The monster hadn't created these doubles. It had only made it possible for Cooper to see them. Cooper pulled over, stared over his shoulder down the empty street where the Cooper in the Reds uniform had gone. He must have recently been called up, had made a stopover in the old neighborhood before going on to Cincinnati. Cooper put his car in drive, meaning to follow this Cooper, then realized there was no need. He settled back in the seat, his turn signal flashing. Cooper knew where the other Cooper was going. If Cooper went to the Reds game the next night, he was sure he would find himself in the bullpen, perched on the end of the bench, spitting invisible sunflower seeds into the dirt. If he went to enough games, he'd eventually see himself on the mound, nervous as hell, throwing major league pitches with an invisible ball as the real game carried on around him. The thought filled Cooper with such longing, such deep regret, that it made his lottery regret seem trivial. He'd quit too soon. When he quit, it had seemed like he was quitting way too late. He'd stuck around six years and never stood out, never got tagged as a prospect to watch. Evidently, something had clicked in season seven. He held up his right arm and looked at it, marveling at the possibility that it might have been capable of throwing a pitch in the big leagues if he'd stuck it out. If he'd stuck it out. The retrospect nature of the monster's gift was beginning to annoy him. All these might-have-beens and glad-he-didn'ts. Was it too late? Were the bridges burned as soon as the other Coopers pulled free of him? 
Cooper tapped the steering wheel as the left-turn blinker continued to tick. Cooper had the same arm as his double in the Reds' uniform. He was the same guy as the one who seemed overjoyed to be back together with a small-town girlfriend. Maybe Cooper could have his own Reds' uniform and his own small-town girlfriend. What if the point of seeing your possible selves wasn't to cause you to regret, but to guide you into the future? Cooper pulled out, heading back the way he'd come. When he got out of his car in front of Julie's house, another Cooper stayed in the car, then pulled off in an invisible car. It was after midnight, but Cooper rang Julie's doorbell anyway. Her brow furrowed when she opened the door and saw it was him. I'm sorry to bother you so late, but this couldn't wait until morning. He was suddenly aware of the slight alcohol-induced laziness in his tongue and hoped Julie wasn't. For the past months, ever since I bumped into you outside Subway, I've been imagining what it would be like if we hadn't broken up. I see us going out, having a great time, laughing. It certainly wasn't a lie. He did see them doing these things. Julie's brow was still furrowed, like she was trying to get a sense of what the hell was going on. He pushed on, figuring he had nothing to lose but his dignity at this point. What I'm trying to say is, I made a mistake. More than one, actually, but one with you especially. And I'm wondering if it's too late to fix it. Julie leaned her face against the door jamb and studied Cooper for a moment. What are you asking? What? What are you asking? Julie shrugged. Are you asking if you want to get a hamburger sometime, or are you about to get down on one knee and propose? Because it sounds like you're about to get down on one knee. If you're asking if I want to go get a hamburger sometime, then sure. Cooper felt a little dumbstruck. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm asking about the hamburger. Julie gave him a crooked, somewhat ironic smile. Okay, then. How about this Friday? Somewhere Cooper had read that it was rude to ask a woman on a date for the next night, that it implied she didn't have options. Julie nodded once and started to pull the door partway closed. I'll see you Friday. Great. His lips feeling slightly numb, his nose tingling in an odd but pleasant manner, he turned and took the steps down her stoop. Eventually he would have to show her the thing in his house, but there would be time for that, if things went well. As he headed home, Cooper realized he'd had the monster all wrong. Maybe there would eventually come a time when most of his doubles were leading less satisfying lives than he. Assuming, of course, he was really seeing his possible lives and not just suffering from some massive psychosis. That possibility had to remain open. He'd have to wait until morning to call Dave Drayton and ask if the Mudcats would take him back. He'd ask nicely, maybe offer to play for less than what they had been paying him. Knowing what was possible, again, assuming this wasn't all a delusion, he'd work his ass off, right the hell off, to merge Cincinnati Reds Cooper's reality track back into his reality track. He was rehearsing what he'd say when he called Dave Drayton as he unlocked the door and burst into his living room. There was an enormous hole in the glass, just like before. This time, though, the monster and all of his doubles were on their side. Cooper approached cautiously, afraid the monster might lunge out at him, maybe undo what it had done the first time. It stayed put, though, watching him approach. Thank you, he said, for what you did. I understand it now. If the monster understood, it gave no indication. Cooper picked up the remote. TV? Want to watch some TV? The monster grew an appendage and, in a gesture that was unmistakable, invited Cooper in. Cooper's balls curled at the thought, 
much as he had grown to respect the thing. It pointed at the hole. Oh, geez, was it asking him to go down that hole? It wasn't making any threatening moves toward him, an invitation rather than a command. The monster waited, watching him. Somehow Cooper felt sure it wouldn't take him somewhere unless it was sure he would be safe. But still, that hole went somewhere people weren't meant to go. On the other hand, it would be like taking the first step on the moon. Yes, he might die horribly, but as he'd learned, you didn't get anywhere unless you took some serious chances. Cooper touched the glass where it was newly shaped, stepping into the archway between his part of the living room and the creature's, and hesitated. The truth of it was, Cooper didn't want to walk on the moon. He wanted to walk to the mound in Cincinnati. He wanted to walk on a beach with Julie. He'd already set out on his adventure. He shook his head. No. Thanks, but no. As Cooper backed away from the threshold, another Cooper tore free and ducked through the opening. The new Cooper followed the monster into the hole as the old Cooper turned on the TV. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Will's Will. Big thank you. Honestly, we'll try and get you on next year as well. We've been talking about this, doing like a little video talk with Will. That would be stunning. And Mike, eh? Old timer, lad. <laughs> Still got it, eh? Never leaves you, big lad. Never leaves you. <laughs> next up, then, is another fact article Poetry Planet by Diane Severson. Diane's looking at the Rising Awards. Hello, and welcome to Poetry Planet. I'm your tour guide, Diane Severson. Today we'll be returning to the oft-visited province of Awardland and hearing what the Reisling Award brought us in this, the year of 2013. If you are a member of the Science Fiction Poetry Association, or the SFPA, are a speculative poet or have listened to a few editions of Poetry Planet, you probably already know what the Reisling Award is. For the benefit of those not yet in the know, the Reisling Award is the annual prize for the best poem of the previous year, awarded by the SFPA in two length categories, long and short. It's akin to the Nebula Award for prose, since only members of the SFPA may vote. You can visit the SFPA website at sfpoetry.com for the gory details on the Reisling Award, and also for membership information if you are interested in participating. We have a lot of poetry to hear today, so without further ado, this year's awards go to, in the short category, The Cat Star by Terry Gary, which is found in Lady Poetesses from Hell, edited by Bagperson Press Collective, Bagperson Press. In the long category, Into Flight by Andrew Robert Sutton from the online magazine Silverblade, number 14. Terry A. Gary's poetry has been published in many journals and anthologies, including Dodeca, Uranus, Starline, Asimov's, Weird Tales, The Magazine of Speculative Poetry, Raw Sacks, Paper Bag Writer, Dreams and Nightmares, Women in Large, and Burning with a Vision. She has edited poetry for Janice, Tales of the Unanticipated, and is editor with Eleanor Arneson of Time Gum and also Time Frames, an anthology of speculative poetry. She lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with a librarian, two cats, and more books than she can count. She is a founding member of Lady Poetesses from Hell. 
Terry tells us this about the inspiration for the poem. My cat, who had moved from California to Minnesota with me, died of feline leukemia in spite of being vaccinated. Dudley had been named after Dudley Do-Right of the Mounties, because he really wasn't very bright. My sister swore she had taught him to drink out of a bowl before she gave him to me, but he forgot, and I had to teach him all over again. He was a dear, sweet cat, and took a kitten we found under his wing, or rather, paw, and carefully taught her all he knew. Luckily, she was pretty smart on her own. He was my link to the past, and I was bereft by his death. So the poem came tumbling out. The Cat Star by Terry A. Gary If there is a dog star, there should be one for cats. Not lion, not leopard, although they are deserving, but a domestic short-haired cat star, firm in the heavens, burning like a green-gold eye, shedding a few photons on a prowl through the galaxies. I have hidden your body in among the ground-down shale, powdered clamshells and centuries of leaf mold. Bright leaves feed small trees here. Twigs grow and crumble. Squirrels leave husks from summer grass. In the winter, birds will come, scattering seeds across the snow where you lie, and I will know you are safe. Your molecules are migrating out into the movements of the years, swirling in sun, storm, bitter cold. You are singing the disintegrating cat song, a whisker song, a clawed paw song, a silent cat song that spreads out to the stars, hums through the universe, then falls back gently, teaching the old carbon and iron and calcium compounds what it is to be a component of earth dancing in the drifted leaves, and what it is to be a part of all you loved. If there is a dog star, there should be one for cats. Andrew Robert Sutton was born and raised in Kalamazoo, Michigan. He attended Michigan State University, where he studied both telecommunications and the written word. His heart has been torn between his love of cutting-edge technologies and traditional art forms ever since. His articles on the history of technology and its impact on business have appeared in over 40 publications, including newspapers, magazines, and numerous blogs. Into Flight is his first foray into poetry. When I approached Andrew about podcasting his poem and asked whether he'd like to record it or if I should do it, he asked me to do the recording, and he said this. When you read it, try to channel Neil Gaiman. I was reading a lot of Gaiman while I was writing the poem, and everything that man sounds terribly clever and meaningful in a way I've never managed myself. Well, I'm not sure if I managed to channel Neil Gaiman successfully, but I hope the reading sounds suitably clever and meaningful. Into Flight by Andrew Robert Sutton It was just one zero too many. One gadget too far. The books gave up and, in a flurry, took flight. How? Scientists couldn't say. Where to? Only the mystic, crystal-toting, tarot-reading, lunatic fringe could even conjecture. 
Hell, most kids didn't even notice, cocooned in their networks, awash in empty streams of bits and bites. That in itself might have accounted for the why. The little ones took to wing first, homilies and pocket Bibles. They darted away quietly between one glance and the next. Then the paperbacks. Bradbury's stuff leading the way, winging off to Mars, pulps in tow. A few thought this a wonder. Soon enough, the Oxford Dictionary, Norton's Anthology, and Shakespeare, Riverside Editions, were aloft. Then came the law books. Lord, the law books. That's when it became impossible not to notice. Only then did anyone care. When it was too much. When it became inconvenient. They interfered with things. The beautiful, fluttering books. They brought air traffic to a standstill. That was just for starters. They frightened pets and startled drivers. They smashed into windows and had a predilection for power lines that could very nearly be called vendetta. Some of the volumes in their vigor shed pages showering the world with poetry and cliffhangers and little snippets of wonder. Office districts were soon buried in white like Narnia beneath its perpetual winter. After a few damp nights, entire city blocks were entombed in paper mache. Antique districts swirled into yellow autumns, while Washington was transformed into a Hitchcockian hell, books of tax codes circling slowly overhead, like buzzards awaiting their prey. Some lonely readers thought to lure their loved ones home. Other readers plotted to recapture them by trickery, their methods as varied as their genre. Poetry lovers were seen sprinting through the meadows with butterfly nets or canary cages baited with binder's glue, singing line and verse. Mystery fans sleuthed while suspense fans waited on tenterhooks. Horror fans gathered to inscribe ISBN numbers into elaborate pentagrams of red ink. Baristas advised wafting cappuccinos out windows while lawyers filed injunctions against authors ordering them to cease their trickery or face consequences. Some readers even tried to signal them with book lights from the rooftops. And, for a single night, the world lit up like a great ocean reflecting the night sky. But, as difficult as they were to pen, the words were ten times more elusive on the wing. Try as readers might, the books wouldn't listen to reason and they couldn't be caught. Certain people had the temerity to shoot at them, drunk and cocksure, thinking the entire thing some grand sport. That proved to be unwise. Hemingway, Twain, and, surprisingly, Dickens, wouldn't stand for such impudence, and the men with guns suddenly couldn't run fast enough. Once it was clear the books wouldn't come down, citizens demanded solutions. Officials the world overtook steps, convened in capitals, passed resolutions. They evicted the molly-coddling librarians, chained shut the library doors, boarded up the busted windows, posted guards. Briefly, it was poetic, all the books fluttering like exotic butterflies in gardens or snowflakes in enormous globes. The books didn't tire, though, and soon the libraries, too, were aloft, hovering like giant zeppelins, plunging cities, then states, into twilight. And then one night, just like that, without any ceremony or fanfare, They left the world, ascending, never to return. Yes, the text was still there, digitized, sanitized, 
organized, but it wasn't the same, and it wasn't long before people knew it. Like salt without savor, like flowers without scent, the text was without soul and offered nothing to its readers. There were no more sanctuaries of silence, no temples of free thought. There was only a gaping void where no one had expected one. The world had become a darker place, and soon men began fashioning themselves paper wings scribed with wild tails, their eyes fixed heavenward. In second place, we have Futurity's Shoelaces by Marge Simon, found in the Balticon 2012 program book. And String Theory by John Philip Johnson, found in James Gunn's online journal Ad Astra No. 1. Marge Simon's works appear in publications such as Bete Noire, Nightblade, Daily SF Magazine, Silverblade, and Dreams and Nightmares. She edits a column for the Horror Writers Association newsletter and serves as chair of the Board of Trustees. She has won the Strange Horizons Reader's Choice Award, twice the Bram Stoker Award, TM, the Reisling Award, and the Dwarf Stars Award. She has published several collections, including Like Birds in the Rain, Unearthly Delights, The Mad Hattery, Vampires, Zombies, and Wanton Souls, and Dangerous Dreams. Her poem, The God's Fallen, is up at liquidimagination.com. Futurity's Shoelaces was inspired by memories of the book and movie titled Testament. She was thinking of an apocalyptic scenario from a woman's perspective, and this poem rather wrote itself. Futurity's Shoelaces by Marge Simon I stare out the window of my cottage, a refuge from a marriage lost. Even the trees are dying. I hear the click of my pen, knowing it must have its way. On a sandscaped shore where life squirmed out from its beginnings, a mother is suspended just above her shadow, which grows longer as the sun recedes. The children rise from her shadow. I make a fresh pot of tea. It is the last of the package, the last of all packages. Richard worked for NASA. He expected sons, or even girls, to carry on his dream. I failed. Escher's multiples on a plane, pleasing, confounding, petrifying. Stravinsky's complex compositions, Hegel's theories, Einstein's gifts, merge into a helix of variables where past and present play tricks. A child called Futurity ties his shoelaces, draws the bow taut. The children know forever. The children never tell. They owe no explanations. Listen, say the children, there's music everywhere. I lay down my pen. Before me is a blank screen. It is past time for the broadcast. The one that will tell us what we need to do. John Philip Johnson has had work in or forthcoming in Dreams and Nightmares, Mythic Delirium, Strange Horizons, Rattle, Southern Poetry Review, and Daily Science Fiction, among other places, besides James Gunn's Ad Astra, where this poem first appeared. 
He reviews for Starline and elsewhere, and just recently earned a master's degree in English with a thesis of science fictional poetry from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. His astro-engineering work at Raytheon is still classified, but let's just say... The story of the poem. I was listening to a talkative friend, and I became aware of the vivid stillness. Nothing was moving except for his lips. I had this acute sense of time running through us, and I began to daydream about the other dimensions, of which string theory tells there are ten or eleven. There is nothing scientific about my poem, but I wanted people to actually experience the dimensions around them. String Theory by John Philip Johnson My friend is telling me a story. As he talks, I'm thinking about string theory. I have gone over to his desk. He wants to loan me a movie, an old VHS. He is telling me a different story. He is telling me now the story behind the story. We're with a correspondent in World War II. We're in the Vatican archives, the court of Tiberius, who has just died. As he talks, I'm thinking about the story of a life being pulled across the moment now. There is one word, one sound, of, he says, or said, or is saying. I'm looking at his fleshy lips saying of. Nothing else is moving. But he has already said, of course, already gone on and is saying something else. And I suddenly see this instant we live in as the curl of time scraping across his lips, the fourth dimension bent over us like an edge, moving through the house of three dimensions. If I try to hold on to one word, one moment, it splinters into shards. And what is real makes no sense. I could have said the meat of three dimensions. I did before. Here or later, I'm thinking about aboriginals drawing curlicues in sand. I'm thinking about the white clouds of what could have been farther away, much softer and more intricate than the thing touching his lips. I am thinking of Francis of Assisi, by locating, because he believed so much. I'm thinking our understanding is drawn down to a single point of indeterminate size, condensed and then uttered as a short word. And then we were washed over the falls. No one, my friend is saying, about a document that may or may not have existed. No one really knows for sure, but, he says, and, of course, he says again, And he has gone on and is saying something else now. And I'm thinking how things are stretched out, as far as the east is from the west. How what he has said, or might have said, or said in some other way, or couldn't say, is clustered around him, intersecting discreetly on his lips, six or seven dimensions kissing him. I'm thinking how all the dimensions and worlds are clustered here, from their myriad beginnings, banging to their various apocalypses, present, including the ones that are nothing but bulk, or the ones that are dream chambers, or the ones that are like the spider plant on his desk. How they become a single thought of indeterminate size, which we don't have a word for, but is the husk for all these things. I'm thinking how my friend and I are like musical strings vibrating in this fascinating place, how we are like everything else, how it is all like a single word, poised, half-said, a word resting, a word identical to its self-pronouncing lips. And, 
and I am thinking of the worlds and the possible worlds, more worlds still, including the ill-conceived ones, including the ones that are nothing but bulk, including the ones that are dream chambers, that render all the other worlds into dreaming, dreams drawn to the utmost point of indeterminate size, and I'm thinking the thought of myriad beginnings, banging into various apocalypses and changes of heart, like the words inflating from my friend's mouth, being said and then disappearing, and I'm thinking of the myriad worlds that stretch from other worlds, the possible worlds and the ill-conceived ones, including the ones that are only the slightest of rims around nothing, and I'm thinking of how my friend and I are like musical strings, vibrating in this fascinating and seemingly endless symphony. I'm thinking how we are like everything else, how it is all drawn to a single point, a word resting, half said, like the word of, poised on self-pronouncing lips, poised in the half-listening dream chambers, the ones that render all the other worlds into dreams, dreaming drawn down to the utmost point, rendered like music, like the vibrations of a single word. This year, there was a tie for the third-place long-form poem, so we have, in fact, three poems to listen to in third place. Third-place short-form poem, Sister Philomela Heard the Voices of Angels by Megan Arkenberg, found in the August 7, 2012 issue of Strange Horizons. Long-form, The Necromantic Wine by Wade German from the anthology Avatars of Wizardry, edited by Charles Lovecraft of Priya Press, and... The Time Traveler's Weekend by Adele Gardner, which you can read in Liquid Imagination number 15. Megan Arkenberg lives and writes in California. Her work has recently appeared in Asimov's Lightspeed, Strange Horizons, and The Best Horror of the Year, Volume 5 and has tried for Best Short Story of 2012 in the Asimov's Readers Award. Her poem, The Curator Speaks in the Department of Dead Languages, won the Reisling Award for Best Long Poem in 2012. Megan procrastinates by editing the fantasy easing Mirror Dance. She also has recent poetry publications in the September issue of Asimov's and the fall issue of Starline. About the poem, Megan says this. It was inspired by Rilke's description of angels in the second Duino elegy, as almost deadly birds of the soul, a line that ultimately made it into the poem itself, I'd been playing with that image for months. Why birds, aside from the wings, of course? And deadly to whom? Sweet, practically-minded Sister Philomela emerged as I continued to explore Rilke's metaphor, and this poem was the result. Sister Philomela heard the voices of angels by Megan Arkenberg. 27 August, 2012. She found the eggshell in the convent garden, broken clean in half. Its hollowness was smooth and dry as sand, no membrane for the nourishment of embryonic flight, only a thin, white dust. On winter nights, when it was darkest, they came to me, hungry, wet feathers with multitudinous voices. Please, was their song and the echo, picking along the curve of my ear, 
fluttering my pages with distraction. Please. But what they needed or hungered for, they never said. Rilke named them best. Almost deadly birds of the soul, but what he missed, lost in translation or on the hot Trieste wind, was that their razor feathers were matted with hunger, their beauty, the pale, thin beauty of tubercular saints. Their voices were blood coughed out on whiteness. Please. Perched on my shoulder in the darkness like a sourceless anxiety, they moaned, and shaking the feathers from my hair, I scattered breadcrumbs. Adele Gardner's poetry collection, Dreaming of Days in Astafel, is available from Sam's.publishing. Her stories and poems have appeared in Legends of the Pendragon, The Doom of Camelot, Penumbra, Scheherazade's Facade, Strange Horizons, Mythic Delirium, Goblin Fruit, and New Myths, among others. In 2012, she chaired the Reisling Awards for the Science Fiction Poetry Association. Currently cataloging librarian for a public library, she's also literary executor for her father, Delbert R. Gardner. Please visit GardnerCastle.com. Adele told me, I wrote this poem for my then-husband and best friend, Mark Newcup, a Revolutionary War reenactor, whose travels through time were very real and would often take him great distances. A talented historian, he had a story for every item in his gear, including things his wife would have made and sent with him. She said, I wish I really had made those things and gone with him. The Time Traveler's Weekend by Adele Gardner 1. The Time Traveler Embarks I love the way you step back in time without a backward glance, as easy as stepping on a plane, bags all packed, travel guides memorized, this foreign land mapped out in your mind, familiar. Cross the line, and you're not a 21st century man at all, but something quite different. Knowing how they thought and lived then becomes simply thinking and living, these props, your rightful clothes and food. For the duration, you believe your wife actually stitched these homespun clothes, baked your bread from scratch in a stone oven. Saying farewell to me, you speak the truth. I'm off to the wars to strike a blow for freedom. I've seen your souvenirs, coins blackened with age and use, the tattered flag you nearly died defending. The scar from the stomach wound you would have died from had you stayed in that colonial age. Instead, in my present, I rush you to the emergency room, still in your colonial clothes. From your coat pocket, you press a letter into my hand, stained with your own blood, smeared by the dirt of centuries. The doctors stitch you up, neat as you strike your tent. You're well, at home, except for the frost, still biting a corner of your heart from all the friends you lost at Valley Forge. 2. The Time Traveler Returns You don't kick back on weekends. You kick off, trading sneakers for straight-last shoes, strapping on bedroll, rifle, cooking pan, grabbing your tent and poles to vault into the past. It's not that things were easier. You're glad to come home, cheerfully praising pure water, vaccines, toilets, at least for the first 24 hours. 
You swear you wouldn't want to live there. Things were terrible for slaves, the First Nations, women, the poor. Even the rich died old at half our span. Women were sacrificed on the altar of birthing beds, worn down after seventeen trials, the proliferation of babies essential because so few survived. Maybe the air was cleaner high above, but here below the cities reeked of coal, wood fires, excrement, and swamp air bred yellow fever in close, stifled rooms. Geography killed. Those colorful, hand-drawn maps don't show crushing winters and too short springs, scant harvests, treks across trackless forests and snowy mountains, parched, lost, eating our own kind. Yet present life wearies you. Lawyers, FBI, layoffs, recession, pollution, extinction, starvation, epidemics, global warming. You drag through the week, worrying that there's no future for anyone here at the end of our planet. We don't know what's next, but most of it looks bad. At best, we might return to backyard gardens and bicycles, walk to our jobs, build things with our own hands, while the luxuries you return for vanish under the crush of surviving babies. Whatever the hardships, the endless toil, the suffering, the future was better there, because we had one. We had the luxury of belief in our own immortality, that inheritors would guard the human story, that the human race would carry on. So you grow restless when the intervals stretch between trips, elongating till they snap you back. You salute goodbye in one ecstatic wave. Your absence lengthens. You come back for work Mondays, then Tuesdays. I call in for you when I wake up alone. You can return at any time you want, and yet you're skipping days, weeks. You spend your vacation there, then work out a flex plan, avoiding the present by working straight through to the moment you'll leave again. Soon it will be leave without pay, months, whole years. There's more gray at your temples each time I see you. Will you be kind and scatter days through my life like a blessing? When you're here, you're like a ghost already. I know each time you return might be the last. You might decide to stay in the past. In the future, I might be dead. But I clutch hope like the presents you bring home, praying with all my might that I don't know the future, that humans will smarten up in time to salvage something, that the next time you come back, you'll take me with you. At this point, I would present to you the second third-place poem, but its epic length dictates that I delay that pleasure and give Wade German's The Necromantic Wine its own Poetry Planet presentation. I hope Tony will be able to squeeze it in next week's show. Otherwise, expect to hear the fantastic The Necromantic Wine in the next few weeks. Well, that'll do it for this 10th edition of Poetry Planet, visiting Awardland. I hope you enjoyed hearing the Reisling Award-winning poems and those placing in second and third place. So this is me, signing out. Diane, thank you so much. And Diane also mentioned as well that we're going to play another 
home next week on the show. But just it was 15 minutes long. It was a bit too long to kind of all cram into this show. So we're going to have a, a double bill this week and next week of culture. Yes, give yourself a headache, man. Oh, until next week. I'd just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.